Wayne Roberts, he does have a way with stating things. He's He has a humor that's unlike anybody else. And he did recently say, because he found out, I've been in Romans for, it's actually technically 47 weeks. We're just getting into chapter 6. And the plan is to spend about three years going verse by every Sunday doing that. When I was when I first got to Bear Valley, I could not fit a chapter into 15 minutes of content. But now I can't fit three verses into 45 minutes. And um, the it, it's the thing that Paul says later in Romans when he says the depths of the wisdom of the knowledge and power of God. You know, how how immeasurable and unfathomable are these things? And I find that the deeper you get into it, the deeper you can go. It, it really is unfathomable. And I'm amazed by that. Um, and so Wayne heard that I'd been in it for this long, and he said they built Rome faster than Daniel is, is, uh, is pre- preaching through Romans. So that's, that's pretty good. But um, let me tell you, a, a number of years ago when I was just a kid, I had a dream that was so vivid and so real that I can remember every detail as though it, it was yesterday. I was uh, in my dream. I was sleeping in my bunk bed, woke up in the middle of the night. It was pitch black. And there was it was something of a trance-like state that I was in. I didn't know what it was, but something was compelling me to get out of bed and to walk my way through the house, down the hall, through the kitchen, out into the uh, living room, and then out onto the front uh, front lawn. But as I was going through the house, I noticed the rest of my family was doing just the same thing. We were all moving in the same direction. None of us were speaking. We were all sort of in this trance-like state, something moving us out. We got out onto the front lawn, and it was completely dark. But there emerged over in the corner of the sky this colorful, bright section. Pitch black everywhere else, no light on us, but this colorful um, beautiful purple and blue and some yellow, and it was like we were watching a sunset, but just in this little section. And then there began to emerge uh, a man in all white who was walking toward us. And as that was happening, there was there began to be this blast that sounded like uh, an ocean vessel, like the the big. You know, bong, one of those kinds of things. And it was blasting, and we were all terrified. And this figure kept getting closer. And when he drew close enough that you could see every detail of him, me and my family began to lift from the ground. Involuntarily, we just started to lift. And as I was looking around throughout the neighborhood, I saw everybody else remaining behind and that sounds kind of arrogant, like the uh, the dream that Joseph had where everybody was bowing down to him. But this is the way that it was. We were lifting up, and everybody else in the neighborhood was staying behind. And it was clear that we were going to meet the Lord, and the rest of these people were not. And you should have seen, in my dream, you should have seen the dread on their faces as they realized, now time is up. Everything is over. The judgment has come. And they were absolutely terrified and i don't think that there's anything we can imagine that's more dreadful than to fall into the hands of the living god and to not be ready on the day of salvation now if you were to go do some polling or just talk to people on the street and maybe even talk to an immature christian and ask (coughs) what is the difference maker between the people that get to rise and meet the lord 
and those that remain behind. I think that you probably get a lot of people that would say simple things like, well, the good people get to go to heaven and the bad people are going to remain behind. But that's not true. That wouldn't be good news for any of us. Especially when we get into the book of Romans, which we're going to be looking at this morning, when it is not at all based on merit or goodness or uh, some kind of internal worth or value that we maintain in ourselves that's impressive before an almighty God. It has nothing to do with that. So this morning what I want to do is help to illustrate the message of the gospel in the clearest way that I know how. Now, one of the blessings of uh, having... See, when they first sent out the request to come and speak, this was over a year ago. This was like 15 or 16 months ago. They sent this out. And so you make your manuscript. One of the blessings is that you've got 15 or 16 months to work on the same sermon. (laughs) But the, the bad thing is you keep looking at it and you think that's not good. So you scratch that one and then you do another one. In fact, if you look in your book, and if you're trying to follow along, that's not going to be what's brought this morning. That will be some additional content for reading, and I think you're going to see some similar structure, maybe some similar ideas. But this is one that um, I finally settled on. If I had another week, I probably would have done something else. But the fact of the matter is the beauty of the gospel is something that is it's so great There's no way to condense it into a short message in a way that is impactful like you would like for it to be. But we're going to do the best we can. I want you to open your Bibles to Romans 1. The topic that I have is the gospel, God's power to save, or God's power for salvation. And if you know your Bible... There's no other place you can go with that than Romans chapter 1, verses 16 and 17. We're going to start there, and we're going to kind of build a base around that area, but we're going to go to some other places in Romans as well. But let me read this. Paul says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, because it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first, and also to the Greek Because in it, in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the one who is righteous by faith shall live. That's going to be kind of home base this hour. Let me give you somewhat of an outline. And I'm going to do it by way of a picture. And this picture is going to develop in three stages, which is going to be the basis of the message this morning. First of all, I, I, I did have a PowerPoint. And uh, I, uh, I forgot the computer back at my lodging. And I was thinking about that before I got up here. And I was thinking, well, it's, it's kind of good because when I was growing up, I played guitar. And I also liked to sing. But any time I tried to do the two of them, I, the singing would get, get off or the guitar playing would get off. And I couldn't do them. And that's kind of how I am with the PowerPoints. A lot of times I keep preaching and I'm like three slides behind. So they're not necessarily the most helpful thing for me. But let me paint you a picture that I had uh, an idea of on the screen previous to this. I want you to imagine in your mind the bleakest image of a post-apocalyptic world. People have just destroyed everything. There's no longer life. There's nothing green. Every structure is dilapidated or completely crumbled to the ground. Every shrub of the field is dried out. 
No green anywhere. Nothing is alive. The ground is cracked. And timbers are dehydrated. It's a hopeless picture. And as you're kind of looking out and surveying this image that's been created by people that destroyed everything, it's just imaginary, you, something catches your attention as you, as your gaze kind of moves around and you see on the ground one colorful, vibrant, <laughs> elegant flower coming up out of the ground. Completely autonomous. It stands all on its own. And it completely draws your attention. In the first part of the message, I want to relate the gospel to that. I want to help us to see the beauty of it like a flower, but especially to make it pop against this background of the bleakness created by human beings. Because that's part of what gives the gospel its beauty, is it standing in contrast to the wickedness and the corruption and all the things that we've created. It's going to be sort of the first part. Sort of looking at it superficially, but the way that the world maybe could see it. Then I want to get closer to the flower and sort of look at some of its composition, going down to its roots and going into the molecular level maybe, and looking at what is it that makes it function the way that it does. How is this thing autonomously producing life despite what people have done. That's the second part of the message. I'm going to relate the gospel to that. And then in the third part, I want you to imagine as you're watching that flower that a bee just straight, just straight past your ear and it goes and it just lights on the flower and it sits down. And you can see it in an eager search for nectar. And that bee gets its legs all covered with pollen. It's yellow all over its body. He draws nectar out. And then he leaves and goes somewhere you can't see. Another bee comes, and this just keeps happening indefinitely. It's just an image, but I want to relate the gospel to that image. So those are the three parts of the message this morning. First of all, Paul says, you know, he says right there, the gospel is the power of God. It is. It has an inherent power that's capable of doing something for you that you could never do. You could never pay for it. There's no willpower that could bring it about. The gospel has an inherent power that's unlike anything else in the world. But in addition to that inherent power that is only going to be given to those who receive it, there's also an alluring power. There's something of it that even if the world is going to be completely honest, is going to catch their attention and is going to draw them into it to some degree. There's some beauty that's in it that is paramount. There's some beauty in the gospel that is incomparable to anything else that's ever been done. And I want to talk a little bit about that. In in Romans 1, if you're open there, look at what he says in verse 13 and also in verse 15. You know, Paul's never met the Roman Christians, but he's heard of them and he wants to come. He's eager to go there. He's not going on a vacation to see the Colosseum or to do one of the uh, mission trips where you just go to paint a building. Paul has something else in mind. He says in verse 13, I have often intended to come to you 
in order that I may reap some harvest among you as well as among the rest of the Gentiles. That's what he wants to do. I want to reap a harvest. That's why I'm going to Rome. But look at what he says in verse 15. How are you going to go about that? These people are living in the elite society of the time. They've got everything that they need. What are you going to do to attract the attention of people that have everything? Well, he says in verse 15, So, or therefore, I am eager to preach the gospel to you who are in Rome. What's the means by which Paul's going to quicken the spirits from their slumbering state such that they would give a second look at this message or this thing that God is bringing? What's he going to go do? He's going to go preach the gospel. Why does it say later in Romans, how beautiful on the feet or on the mountains are the feet of those who bring the good news? Have you ever seen a man's feet? (laughs) Especially after he's been outside all day? There's nothing beautiful about them at all, but it does say there is something beautiful about them if they're on the mountains moving to bring this message of salvation to people. That's how it's going to be received when it's seen. To a people living in darkness, to a people who are completely consumed in a culture of self, to a people who have been uh, told lies about what it means to have true joy or contentment or lasting peace or pleasure. There's something beautiful when they come in contact with the gospel. And that's the whole message of, uh, of Romans is Paul is wanting to bring that and he's going to explain exactly what that looks like. In fact, it even says in Romans 10 that faith, specifically in context of the gospel, comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. So the gospel is the thing that generates faith. Now, granted, it's going to be in the eyes of the people that that are open and that are willing to receive it, but the gospel is the means to bring that about. The, the scriptures painted as something that if it's done properly, it's going to draw the attention. So I want to paint just a couple petals on that flower that to me stand out in such a way that we can use these scriptures to get, get the attention of the world. I was in a conversation recently with a, a young man and he was belligerent and he was uh, living a, a corrupted and openly corrupted life was uh, antagonistic to the message of the gospel that I was bringing. And I was talking about what Jesus did. I was trying to be cordial and and kind in this. I was simply saying, none of us are righteous. Uh, What we have is a gift from God. But I was talking about the death of Jesus and what Jesus did. And he said, the death that Jesus did, Jesus dying in the way that you say that he did, he said, that's no different than a soldier who dies for his country. So this happens all the time. The thing that you're saying is such a big deal. Now, I'm not downplaying the sacrifice that a soldier makes for his country. I think we all appreciate the freedoms that we have because of what those who came before us did on our behalf. But what Christ did is completely unique in every way. And one of those petals on this flower that I think ought to stand out to the world is what Paul says in Romans chapter 5, verses 6 through 10. He says, for while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. 
But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we've been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while enemies we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled shall we be saved by his life. The, the thing that puts the death of Christ in contrast to what we might see, see, you take a soldier who dies on behalf of his country, and everybody knows that's an amazing sacrifice. He gave up his life for this other thing. But the fact is, he was giving up his life for something that he loved, and for something that he believed in, and for something that he valued. But what it says here of Jesus is that we were weak, we were ungodly, that is, the image of God that had been impressed on us from our creation had been lost. We were sinners, therefore living in hostility to God. He even says we were enemies. Weak, ungodly, sinners, enemies. Paul says it's a rare thing for somebody to die for anyone. And if they die for somebody, if they give their, their, their one single life up for someone else, they're going to only do so if... That's a good person or a righteous person, and even then it's extremely rare. Very few make that sacrifice. But he says what Jesus did was he gave up his life for us while we were in this rebellious, hostile, sinful, ungodly state. It's unlike any other death that has ever existed. We have to know how to articulate that and show that to the world. That's one of those flower petals. Another one... Um, we, we live in a, we live in a culture that is exalted self above everything. Self is the supreme God. Um, we are even taught to have self esteem as if we need help lifting self up, but it's on every motivational poster in every high school. And it's taught in all the pep rallies. Self is we are self-absorbed. There's self-magazine. We're self-centered. We're told to put self before anything else. In a self-exalted, dog-eat-dog world, look at what it says of Jesus in Philippians 2 and verse 6. Though he was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. That's a beautiful flower in the middle of a barren wasteland of self-interest. Where all we've done is created these lifeless structures and things that cannot amount to anything. You look at Jesus the Christ and you see somebody who was in the highest place. Unimaginably higher than we can even fathom. And he lowered himself to a point far lower than we would even be willing to go. And when he went down to that position, not only was he serving, but he gave up his life for the very people that wanted to kill him. That's a beautiful flower in the middle of a barren wasteland. Another thing that I think of is when I look on Jesus, who was hanging on the cross. And the very people that are scorning and ridiculing and mocking him, the people that drove the nails through his flesh and tore his back wide open. Jesus is looking down in that position saying, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. I don't care who you are. You look on that image that is unlike anything else that exists in the world. 
When we look out at the world, we see self-interest. And when you look to a Savior who is asking for forgiveness for the very people that are murdering him, that's an altogether unique thing. We have to know how to articulate that. It's a beautiful flower, and that's just on the surface of it. Those are the things that I think anybody, if they're being honest, could look and say, that's a good idea. They might not say they believe in Jesus, but they can at least say, there's something in this story that attracts my attention. I had a friend that was a missionary in China for a number of years. He didn't realize that the people weren't really believing these stories. They were coming to church for like two years. He thought he'd made Christians. Turns out they just liked the stories. But they liked them enough to keep coming back week after week to hear about it because they'd never seen anything like it. Eventually, they did come to faith. So you've got the beauty of the flower. But the thing that I think helps it to pop in a way that, you know, you the bottom line is you're driving past a lush meadow. You're not going to notice a single flower in that meadow. You're going to see the whole thing. But what but you see a barren landscape where nothing's alive, everything's dead, everything's broken down. And then you see a flower living. That's going to draw your attention. So the fact of the matter is, there's something of that barrenness that has to be painted for the people to see the gospel in contrast to it. If we're still under the impression that the systems we have employed as people and our philosophies, our humanistic modes of thinking and the things that we're doing for social justice and all that, if we're still under the impression that that's going to amount to anything on the scale of eternity, then the gospel's not going to stand out. But when we begin to see, that, you know what? What we've created is a mess. And we need a solution that we can't come up with. I was, uh, so, so you have to paint that picture. And in a moment, I want to give a couple scriptures um, for it. But I was, uh, a few years ago, I was teaching at a Christian camp back in Oklahoma. And I have to say, I was completely thrown off guard. It's been uh, too long since I've been connected with any kind of youth. And my wife and I, we were missionaries overseas for a number of years. And um, we weren't in this place. But I was preaching about purity and specifically about how to take an impure heart and all these habits and things we've created, how to get them out about being filled with God and being filled with the Spirit. I was making it very practical. And I did a message on five aspects of gaining purity. And I was overwhelmed after the message with young men that came up and wanted to talk on the side. Now, my my suspicion was going to be these, these guys are struggling with pornography. This is going to be some sexual-related thing. That's the way young men are. Well, I was thrown off guard to find out that wasn't really the struggle. These guys were all doing drugs. These are members of the church. One of the kids, his dad was an elder. And these kids, for some of them a year, some a couple years, some three years, had been smoking weed every day. And it had been bringing them to do other things. And the, the actual thing that most young men struggle with, which is something of a sexual nature, they weren't struggling with it. Because they were 
they'd lost all of their sobriety that even the natural things of being a young man weren't there. I, but, but here's the thing. I asked these guys because they're coming forward. I said, let's talk about this. Is anything that you're doing fulfilling you? The resounding answer, though they were in bondage, was no. No, it was not. These guys were on the verge, one of them, of wanting to kill himself. Greatly depressed. The things that the world said just consume. I mean, we've got marijuana stores everywhere. Oklahoma right now has more pot shops than any other state in the country. Can you believe that? And it's not even legal yet. It's still medicinal. Got a lot of people needing medicinal marijuana. But you got it here in Colorado too. We got into our hotel room the other day. We got into the hotel room, which is a smoke-free hotel room. Just, whoa, skunk been in here? (laughs) Somebody been smoking weed before we got there. They had to move us to a different room. It's everywhere. And the bottom line is when you get into the lives of these people and you talk to them, though they're doing this, this self-medicating type thing, they're not happy. In fact, they realize things are breaking down in their life. They're aware of the fact that all they can create and that all these drugs can create is additional barren wasteland. There's no life found in it. That's the reality. And here's the thing. Beginning to see that, Paul says, this is Romans 3, 9 through 10, which when I really got into it, every bit of my uh, self-exaltation or pride in the kind of good kid that I was was just completely thrown out. Paul says this, because he painted in chapter 1, the Gentiles are unrighteous. He painted in chapter 2, the Jews are unrighteous. In chapter 3, he says, what shall we say then? This is chapter 3, verse 9. Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. Because we've already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. As it is written, none is righteous. No, not one. He says in verse 12, all have turned aside. Together, listen to this, together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. If you were to just circle that one word worthless, that is the exact opposite message the devil's trying to impress right now. He wants young people to think that what they are in their lostness is something to be proud about and something to uh, be esteemed about and that has this great value. And even Christians sometimes take that and they say, you were so valuable that God wanted to save you. I agree that that's the way that we were originally. I agree that we're made as children in perfect innocence. But the bottom line is Paul says what was created and what we did, we became worthless. No value at all. And yet God still did what he did. That's how much he loves us. We have to see ourselves that way. There's nothing I can bring to the table. What can I offer to God? What's more is that because of that righteousness, this is still painting that picture of bleakness. Because of that unrighteousness, not only did we break down all the structures here, not only did things become messed up in our own lives, but we got a big problem with the man upstairs. Because because of that unrighteousness, this is what Paul says in chapter 1. 
Verse 18. He says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness have suppressed the truth. Though the things of God were plain to them, they still suppressed it. So, he says, because of what we created, which was a mess, then we made an even bigger problem with God. Because God being holy cannot stand in the presence of unrighteousness. The only thing unrighteousness does before God is it makes him angry. Wrath is the response of God to unrighteousness. And that's the picture that he gives. So, when we're bringing the gospel, this beautiful flower, we have to also find a way to tap into the life of the person to say, are things really going the way that you'd like for them to be going? Because odds are, though they're high on drugs and maybe have all of the amenities anybody could ever want, there's a deeper longing when the lights go out at night and they're by themselves that is there. And they're doing everything they can to try and cover it up. We have to help get into that. And then we have to say, I've got someone I want you to look at. And his name is Jesus. And he does something for you that nobody else can. In fact, let me tell you about what he did in my life. That's what we have to do. That's what a testimony is. We have to... I think sometimes we lack the passion in what it is that Christ has done for us because we don't really know how much he's done for us. We're still under the impression that I was pretty good and I did 90 and God finished the last 10. Or maybe even I did 10 and God finished the last 90. But none of that's true. The the, the reality is God did 100% of what was needed to save our souls. We cannot bring anything to a God who holds the universe in his hands. We can do nothing but to fall at his feet and to ask for mercy. If we want to win souls, there's no jar in the world as powerful as the gospel. And the thing that I'm wondering is, have we as churches forgotten that? And have we made it such that our our intentions and our approach to the world is by way of additional programs, a slicker production, pizza parties for the youth, all kinds of things that, you know, we, this is the structure and the model that you see out in the world to bring people in because it's one church against another. How can we give a better product to a person who can get up and leave and go down the street if they get mad? What do you do? I cannot, re- I cannot forget when I was studying here at Bear Valley. And we had an assignment. I can't remember whose class it was, but we had an assignment to interview a local denominational pastor about church growth. What are you doing? What themes are you seeing? What is working for you? What isn't working for you? And I'll never forget. I believe it was Chris Croats and his group had interviewed a, a, a mega church pastor here in Denver. Mega church pastor said, to be truthful. Because they had thousands of people. He said, to be truthful, we have as many people going out the back door as we have coming in the front door. Seriously? Despite having a million dollars in a Starbucks in the sanctuary? (laughs) That's not doing it? No. There is nothing else that will have any lasting effect 
than to bring people the gospel of Jesus Christ. This is the thing Paul was eager to preach everywhere he went. When he was going to Rome, he said, I'm bringing the gospel. That's what we bring. Show people the plain and simple gospel and be real with them. Hey, our church, we don't have a big slick thing. But you know what we do have? We have an appreciation for the greatest gift in the world, and we want to help make it known to you. And despite the fact that we're lacking some of these amenities, we're filled up. That's what we bring. So that's the first stage. Now, I understand that was a long section on the first stage, but we're gonna. this is why I have a hard time taking a few verses, and but we're, we'll, we'll try to get through this. Um. Second, if if I had a slide, I would be showing you um, the the flowers power source. When I first wrote this out, I wrote flower power, and then I thought, <laughs> that's we're not going to do that. That does not. That sounds way too wimpy for for what we have. So I changed it to the the gospel's power source, and all it was was a picture. Just you can just imagine, it's just as good. It was a picture of roots coming down, just the roots. You couldn't see anything else. And said the gospel's power source. So we're going to look at that. This is the second part. Zooming in closer. We're not looking at the superficialities of it any longer. Or, you know, bouncing it off the bad, the bad stuff behind it. We're just looking at the flower, kind of getting down to its roots, and then we're going to go a little bit into the molecular makeup. How's this thing do what it does? So, first of all, say you're looking at that flower. You're perplexed by it because there's no life anywhere, and there's you've been a lot of places. This flower is totally unique. What is it? Is there a spring underneath it? Mm-hmm. You go over to it. The water or the ground all around it, completely dry. You kind of try to get down under it, completely dry. It's dry in every way. And yet the root system goes deep and is thriving. And the green on the flower is vibrant and bright the petals are not parched. They're not hanging low. They are filled up with moisture. And so you know, okay, what's happening here is not natural. What this is is supernatural. That's the way the gospel is, and we have to conceive of it in that way. In terms of it being a power, there's nothing of human uh, prowess that's brought to the table to make this thing what it is. It's completely and solely by God. That's what Paul says in Romans chapter 1, verse 16. I'm not ashamed of the gospel. Why? Because it is the power of God for salvation. This thing exists in our world totally autonomous to anything we can bring to it. This is a power because of Almighty God, and that's it. We get to look on it, and we're going to be able to talk in a second about drawing from it, but this is completely and totally by God. And what that means is, if a man is to be saved, it will not be because he has a greater willpower than another person. That wouldn't be the power of God any longer. That'd be the power of me, or you. What this means is, if a man is to be justified, it will not be by law-keeping. In fact, that's core to the gospel. What it means is, if we are to overcome the flesh, which Paul argues we can, 
It will be by the resurrection power of Jesus Christ. And it will not be from something that I had that another person next to me who didn't have the same resolve didn't have. So it's all God. Now, next slide. You can picture up there just a cell, a picture of a bright colored cell. Just zoom in. What, how does this thing work? What makes the gospel do what it does? Well, um, back in verse 16, you know, he says the gospel is the power of God for salvation. So that's a fact. It's a statement of fact. You, you have to know that fact. But he does explain in what way or how that works. Because he says in verse 17... So it's the power of God for salvation. And then look what he says in verse 17. For, so how, why is it the power of God for salvation? For in it, that is in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed. So that's an answer to that. Now it's a bit obscure at first, but Paul explains this through the rest of the book. How does that answer the question that you have about how the gospel is the power to save. Well, Paul says, because it reveals God's righteousness. So, remember what he says in verse 18, just following this. In verse 18, he says, now the wrath of God is revealed against all unrighteousness. Now, we learned in chapter 3 that that's all of us. So what you get when you put those things together is that what I do... What my unrighteousness produces God's wrath. And God's righteousness produces my salvation. That's what you get when you put those two things together. So, how does that work? We'll go to uh, chapter 3 and look at verse 21. We'll just start there. Chapter 3, verse 21. He says, but now... In contrast to every point of time ever before this. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. Because there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. How does the gospel have this power through it to be able to save me in my unrighteousness? Well, the first part of it is that Paul says, because the gospel's saving power is not connected to law-keeping. That's the first part of how it's a power source. If it were connected to law-keeping, number one, it'd be bad news for all of us because there was never a person who could keep the law. The Gentile did not perfectly keep the law of conscience or the law of nature. The Jew did not keep the law of Moses. Nobody kept the law. So, he says the reason why it's power source is because it's disconnected from you. God's righteousness is now manifested apart from the law. The other reason why this is, has to be this way is Paul argues 
he argues it in Galatians, and he argues it in Romans chapter 4, is that God promised a blessing to the world that was going to come through Jesus to Abraham prior to the giving of the law. And you can't come back later after a promise was already made and say, but also you have to keep this law in order for the promise to come to fulfillment. That's the argument in Galatians and in Romans 4. So that's why it's, that's part of the molecular breakdown of this thing. But second, you have to ask, prior to receiving the gospel, we were all under law. If you're a Jew, you're under the law of Moses. If you're a Gentile, you're under the law of conscience. And what did you do with that? Well, again, we created barren wasteland. We ruined stuff. We still sinned against God because he has an order and a design in the world that he wants us to live by. And people broke that down and we messed that up. So what do you do about the, 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 the infractions that were made by us prior to the reception of this thing that's apart from law? Well, another way to ask the question is go back in your Old Testament. Not, not, I'm just going to give the story real quick. You go to the life of David and David did something that stands out in all of scripture as being pretty horrible. Maybe took her by force. We don't, I don't know, but he at least as the king used his authority to bring Bathsheba to his place, lied with her, had what he wanted, then sent her back, finds out she's pregnant, tries to cover it up. When he can't cover it up, murders her husband. This is really bad. And then when Nathan went to him, Nathan said, and he gave that parable. He says, you're that man. Yeah. And David was cut to the heart. And this is what David said. I've sinned against the Lord. That's all he said. And then what did Nathan turn right around and say? You shall not die. Okay. David had done a number of things that the law said when you do this, you must die. So how is God a righteous God for not taking care of that problem when the man broke the law that said, if you break it, you're going to die? Well, you fast forward to the New Testament and you look at what he says in Romans 3 when he says that we are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. And then it goes on to say this was to show God's righteousness at the present time because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. There were problems that had not been dealt with yet. There was a bank account with debt that had accrued. But we were not going to be able to pay it back. And what he's saying is God put forward Jesus as this means of div divine appeasement. When you tap into Christ, that pays for the things, the infractions and all the things we did under a system of law. And there is nothing like it. Now, I want to briefly finish by you see that bee, he buzzes past your ear, and he goes and he sits down on the flower, and he's just eager, just drawing nectar. I don't know how a bee does it, probably not like this, <laughs> but he's drawing nectar from this thing, and he's eager. 
and that bean knows there's no other flower anywhere. I, he, and he gets it, he brings it back to the colony, and makes something out of it, makes honey with it. Uses some of his saliva and some of the nectar, and I don't know how they do it, but feeds his family and feeds the colony by this. And he knows it's the only way to do it. He keeps going back and forth. The bottom line is the gospel of Jesus is a power source that has the potential and the ability to save every soul on the planet. There is no lack of power. It's, it's unlimited. It is not bound in the way that human things are bound. But you do not get it if you don't go draw from it. The power source, there's a lot of people that are going to take a second look at the gospel and say, what is that? This is so different. And they can get really close and they can be right in contact with the greatest power in all the world. But if they don't drink from it, they're not going to live. Jesus said, truly I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him on the last day, because my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. Jesus is saying, come to me, come to the table and feast on me. Draw me into your life. Paul's argument all through Romans is, believe in Jesus. And he's not talking about a dinky little faith, where you say, I think Jesus is the Son of God. In Romans chapter 4, here's the faith. The faith was of a man who was nearly a hundred, so was his wife. Her womb was barren. He was as good as dead. And God said, guess what? You're going to have a baby. And the text essentially says he believed God even when he considered his own body as good as dead and all of that. He kept looking to the promises. Abraham's faith In chapter 4 of Romans is the faith that Paul says, if you have that, then you get the blood of Jesus. And in chapter 6, of course, he talks about where that happens. Immersion, being baptized, but it's not just getting in water. It's, it's, you've looked around at the barren wasteland. There's no life anywhere. Jesus, you're everything. I totally want you. I'm going to feed on you all of my days. And I believe that you've offered me this gift. And on that basis and that kind of faith, you get down into the water. You're raised up to me and to be a new man. So when you look at those two groups, one's going to rise and the other's going to stay behind. What's the difference? The difference is not a difference of worth or willpower or greater morality or this person offered more to God than that person. The difference maker is that somebody came to Jesus and realized There's no life anywhere else, and I'm going to draw from him. And our job is to show that power to the world, get into their lives, help illuminate what they already know in their deepest self about what's happened because of the way they've done things, and give them Jesus. And the doctrine will follow, but we cannot get it backwards. You do not go to a person who's in that lostness and say to them, God wants you to immediately fulfill this checklist. They have to first see the beauty and the need and believe. And then those other things, they'll say, what can I do? 
So I hope that that image will stick with you and that you can use it as a tool for helping bring people to Christ. Thank you.